This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, in another News Roundup episode, we talk about Corby Mania, London's burning tower of poor people, the Bernie Bro assassin, Trump's moves on Cuba and the climate, and Dennis Rodman, the basketball diplomat. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Donald. Hey, it's Donald from Communist League of Tampa. Patrick. Um, I'm here. And Lexi. Hey, it's Lexi, mean and ungenerous. Okay, so doing another news roundup. A lot of news. Uh, the first thing that I want to talk about, it's not quite... Um, it's not quite the recurring segment like who's running for president this week, but there is somebody who I think has taken on potentially a new political importance, perhaps of world historical implications. And I'm talking, of course, of, of Dennis Rodman. Um, who ah, Dennis Rodman has been acting as an ambassador for peace and basketball uh, between us, the United States, and North Korea for a number of years now. Uh, recently, he returned... Uh, to North Korea on a trip paid for by a cryptocurrency called Potcoin. Uh, he's there for what he describes as basketball diplomacy and having a good time and building a message of, quote, peace and understanding. Um, what makes it interesting now is that Rodman is friends with Trump uh, because he did the Celebrity Apprentice a couple times. And he said about it, quote, I'm pretty sure he's happy that, um, at the fact that I'm over there trying to accomplish something that we both need, end quote. And so this is fueling like all kinds of like speculation, like, in the you know, I think I saw something in the Washington Post where they were speculating that, you know, it might have something to do with like some people who are held there, who have been detained there. And, you know, that Trump may be trying to create channels through Dennis Rodman to get to the North Koreans. Um, it's pretty, I don't know, I, I think it's really interesting. And I remember like um, Rodman actually sees it this way, too. And uh, in an interview with Sports Illustrated in, in 2013, he wrote, he said, quote, my mission is to break the ice between hostile countries. When it's been left to me to smooth things over, I don't know. Dennis Rodman, of all people. Keeping us safe is not really my job. It's the black, sorry, it's the black guy's job. He was referring to Obama. Uh, but I'll tell you this. If I don't finish in the top three for the next Nobel Prize, something's seriously wrong. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's... It, I mean... I just think I mean, it's so telling. I feel like of this moment where, because I actually think that like, I actually could see Trump like turning to Dennis Rodman sub capacity as like a as like a way to. I mean, I don't think the Washington Post is completely crazy to float that out there. Um, I mean, there is the so, question of just what's going to happen in North Korea because it's yeah. just such a uh, there's no state like it. It's truly a state that is isolated from any kind of market or cultural exchange, and it. Is just such an isolated society, and you can just imagine, you know, the chaos that would ensue if there was to be a regime change. You know. Yeah, I'm. I'm really trying to think like, what is the end game? Because I mean, it feels like a situation that just can't go on forever. You know, like, what is the end game for the North Korean elites? I mean, 
it seems like, I don't know, it seems like it'd be really cheap to just kind of buy them out. But, you know, they're, the whole thing, the whole situation there is so like hyper ideological and so, so based on like this un, you know, questionable concentration of authority that I, I just don't see what the exit strategy is for any of this, you know? Well, there's a very strong ethno-nationalism in North Korea and a very strong emphasis on Korean traditions and Korean culture. And so I think that's a lot of the ideology that kind of um, drives them, I think. Hmm. It's unlikely for there to be an A2 Brute situation where there's like a military coup. That just wouldn't probably be acceptable. Well, isn't there basically a military coup as it, on, as it stands? Like it's, it's basically like an alliance of like, you know, the bureaucracy and military running the entire yeah. thing. I mean, it, yeah. it, it must be pretty much, un- I mean, maybe there would be like a, you know, I don't I, I honestly don't know like where a change in power would come from, but it's hard to say because, you know, the society is so insular. It's really hard to know like what kind of, di- you know, social dynamics are at play there. Go One on. would imagine it's more like like a uh, East German state or something where a lot of the dissent has been like managed away, more or less. It, but what's it, weird about it is that unlike East Germany, there there's no broader context of, you know, uh, like the Eastern Bloc. You know, it's just like this weird outlier that's like just kind of sitting there. You know, China is basically marketized. Russia, the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. And it's just kind of like this weird holdout that, um, you know, because it doesn't have like the same, you know, geopolitical context at all. It's really bizarre. Yeah. And they've basically given up completely on the ML ideology and have reverted, you know, like I said, to this Juche nationalist idea. Self-reliance. Yeah, and then if it, it kind of, you know, Trump-North Korea alliance makes kind of sense, you know? Like, they're, they're both into economic nationalism. Yeah, but, it's uh, I think maybe what's, what's going on is, like, I don't know, Trump wants to use Dennis Rodman to kind of introduce, like, China-style reforms, <laughs> if that makes sense, without I sacrificing am. the monopoly of the ruling party. Like, just, yeah, just the idea of Rodman alone just introducing being like um dang i can't actually pronounce the guy's name dang Xiaoping. yeah yeah being like <laughs> just just slipping it in just slipping in economic reform somehow like who's <laughs> going to be their gorbachev their jeffrey Sachs. yeah their jeffrey Sachs. i mean Trump, I, I, a little shock therapy it's such an interesting relationship seeing like this D-list country and like this D-list celebrity sort of using each other, you know, for like, because I was watching this documentary about one of uh, Dennis Rodman's visits there. And they had like this Harlem Globetrotters basketball game. And I don't know if you've ever, any of you have ever been to like a Harlem Globetrotters basketball game, but it's, it's a pretty like low level affair, you know, like they have it in like a medium sized, you know, like college uh, basketball arena, you know, uh, that probably won't even be completely filled. But when Dennis Rodman brought the Harlem Globetrotters there, it was like a major state event. Like it was probably like the biggest state event that they've, you know, public event that they've had in a while, like in North Korea. And it was this huge lavish affair. And so it's like, you know, for them, like the Harlem Globetrotters is almost as big as like the Olympics or something, Um, which kind of, I think, says something about just how, uh, how sort of deprived and how desperate, you know, that regime is for any like ounce of prestige that they can possibly get. Like I feel like Kathy Griffin would be would be you know greeted like a you know the guy like the Pope or something if she went over there. 
Well, I think I think the Globetrotters were, are really getting their due in North Korea because they always beat the Washington generals, and there's something objectively anti-imperialist about defeating the Washington generals. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I didn't even think of that. Which, by the way, they did not bring the Washington generals to North Korea. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, I think even Vice knew that that would have been a bad move. Uh, yeah, well, I don't think the Washington generals are actually the team that the Globetrotters play anymore. What? I think, I think it's something else. I could be wrong. I mean, that, the last I saw them decades ago, but they weren't they weren't playing the Washington Generals. Uh, are they playing like the Brooklyn Cultural Marxists now or something? <laughs> yeah, I wish. Uh, well, I I don't think oh. I can just gloss over the fact that Dennis Rodman. This isn't the first time Dennis Rodman has been politically relevant. Um, so like Leslie Feinberg, uh, who wrote uh, trans, uh, I think it's transgender liberation. Um, who's a communist, whose last words were, remember me as a revolutionary communist. She was a, uh, Z, I, I don't remember uh, I'm pronounce. pretty sure they were in the World Workers Party. Yeah, yeah, Worker World Party. Uh, they had a, a, a very interesting, complicated uh, pronoun system that I can't do respect to right now. Um, but the point is that um, they wrote a book called uh, Transgender Warriors, um, making history from Joan of Arc to Dennis Rodman. Um, and, you know, this is, that that was probably the first time I really looked at Dennis Rodman as politically relevant. Was no, Dennis, Dennis Rodman was on the cutting edge. I mean, part of the reason I guess maybe this story tickled me so much is because, like, I remember Dennis Rodman. Like, my dad was a Chicago Bulls fan. And, you know, he played defense for them. And, you know, his, his like, exceptional skill was... Um, uh, getting rebounds like he was he was like the top rebound guy in the league for you know many times uh, but he was also known more for his antics where he would like headbutt referees and you know he'd dye his hair a different color every week and most famously he once promoted a book of his by wearing a wedding dress announcing he was bisexual and saying that he was going to marry himself uh, and this is in the 90s oh yeah yeah and that, so I you know I didn't think I mean at the time it's I kind of a lot of people kind of wrote it off as like a transparent publicity stunt, like because you know he seemed like he was trying a little hard, but uh, I think you know there's retrospectively uh, history has uh, judged him well. Uh, how, whether it will judge him well in this North Korea affair, uh, yeah, time will tell. But uh, honestly, I think there are worse people to be handling nuclear negotiations right now, especially yeah. you know with the Trump administration in power. So yeah, Dennis Rodman is. In many ways, you know, he, he may have been known for, you know, rebounds in basketball, but he's very much the, the vanguard of the dunk in <laughs> international diplomacy and gender abolition. So three cheers for Chairman uh, Dennis Rodman, the Deng Xiaoping of North Korea. <laughs> I got sucked in, you know, I followed the French elections a little bit when that was happening and I got sucked into that. And I got sucked into the uh, watching the English stuff you know, once Jeremy Corman basically pulled up that big upset. Um, yeah. For those who, I'm sure if you're listening to this thing, you know who he is, but just <clears throat> to review. Jezadane. He was Daddy a long <laughs> time uh, far left backbencher who, since 2015, has been the elected leader of the Labor Party and broadly dismissed as unviable by pretty much every commentator and many of the professional strata within his own party. Uh, and there was a snap election uh, that was widely expected that labor would get decimated, perhaps even annihilated. But they actually made gains, uh, the most that they made in an election since 1945. Um, 
And wow. the United States, uh, the Bernie Krat left has been going nuts about this. And, you know, many people have been salivating at the prospect of May's coalition dissolving because, you know, she formed it with, uh, I think, uh, the Democratic Unionist Party, which is like this hardcore conservative Protestant Irish party. Um, it's basically like the party of apartheid, essentially, in Ireland. Um, and, you know, potentially, it could potentially break down the treaties that exist in Ireland, having these people uh, forming a government. So the whole thing is wow. super, super unstable. But many on the Bernie Krat left are salivating on this idea that there will be another election soon and Corbyn will be prime minister. What concerns me, though, is that I haven't really heard much talk of you know, any real consideration of what happens when he wins or if he wins. And some of this is like a byproduct of the fact that the left is so far from any kind of real power that it's almost not even a question worth considering. But, you know, in many ways, I think it's actually extremely important and something that I've not heard remarked a lot upon. So I thought maybe we could talk about that for a little bit. Like what, you know, is... I think because I think getting elected right now, getting elected right now in England would basically be a poison chalice. But I don't know. What say you guys? All right. I think that if Corbyn becomes prime minister, it would probably be the worst move that he could make right now. It's a situation he's in right now is a lot more amenable for him than if he were to become prime minister because he's going to have to, you know, manage Brexit negotiation. He's probably going to have to deal with um, capital flight, economic crises, and shit. So, I mean, we've talked before about, you know, what happens when leftist parties try to administer capitalism. And uh, I don't think that it would work out very well for him, unfortunately. I mean, I, I think really this is the best position for labor to be in if it wants to be a party of opposition that builds a kind of working class opposition to austerity or whatever. And it's also the best position the Labour Party could be in if communists wanted to do entryism into it, which is, um, I don't know, a controversial idea, but I don't necessarily rule it out. Yeah, as far as the Labour Party goes, um, one, one can't just like abandon the the analysis that one's been building up just because the left gets kind of close to power. I feel like the left gets super libidinal and super hot and starts to like, you know, put its, uh, put all of its book learning aside when it gets close to that button. Um, and the fact is that attaching oneself to the executive of the capitalist state is going to mean, in, you know, executing capitalism. Um, and I think one can see the inevitable logic of this kind of social democratic strategy unfolding, um, Ironically, in, in uh, Novara, Novara Media is a, a sort of libertarian communist podcast that I've admired for a while. And Erin uh, Bastani is, is the uh, more kind of electorally minded half of the kind of founding team. And, um, you know, recently was sort of defending labor's uh, campaign promise to add more police to the streets. Now, of course, one wants to not dismiss people's concerns about the streets being unsafe, but you know, the entire critique of the police state and the, and um, is, is difficult to prosecute in the public eye when, you know, the proletariat is, you know, hungry and at times eating itself alive and police are rightly or wrongly thought of as interlocutors to, 
you know, defend the proletariat from itself. I mean, of course I don't buy this, but you know, like there's, there's a certain logic to it that if you get voted in or if you're even just playing armchair politics or, or even, you know, going out there and knocking on doors and doing some work that I actually think is admirable, you're going to get sucked into um, defending what executive would come out of that. Um, yeah, exactly. You're gonna have to carry water for this. And I've seen so many people who are just like, yeah, fuck the police, like turn around and kind of like cynically defend like this maneuver. Oh, it's a tactical maneuver that they can get the other person on to, you know, score points or whatever. But like, the, you know, that's the problem with this. It's like, you know, for building working class political power, you know, getting elected is not an end in and of itself. It's a means to an end. And that's something that often gets lost because, you know, this is why you actually have to have like an actual plan to transition out of capitalist society, because you're then you're going to need then you from that plan, you can begin to understand what sort of tools you'll need to implement it. And then you could seek power appropriately on that basis. Now, I mean, I was, you know, I was as heartened by this as anybody. I mean, when I first heard about it, yeah. I, was, I was pleasantly surprised, put a little spring in my step that day. But we have to remain cognizant that there are real traps here because I'm not convinced that labor or anybody else can really manage capitalism any better than any than the conservatives or you know anybody or the lib devs or anybody because you know I'm a Marxist and I believe these are fundamentally systemic problems and until the British working class and really the international working class is prepared to challenge capitalism as capitalism you're going to have problems Implement, you know, not only expanding the welfare state, but just defending it. That's been the history of, you know, the era that we've been in for the last fucking 40 years. Well, you know? the, good new, the good news is, Jake, that labor doesn't have to worry about uh, taking responsibility for the government right now. And I don't think there's much of a chance of, honestly, I, I think probably what's going to happen is similar to the Tory Lib Dem situation where it's going to drag out in a catastrophic kind of ham-fisted, no pun intended, <laughs> fashion and um and be kind of a political disaster that you know thoroughly besmirches the honor of the tories and their coalition partner and you know sets sets up labor now it's going to be a problem when labor actually ha takes the reins of power down the road but for now um and and although i respect people that you know are went hard for corbin and yada yada like um i don't think that they can honestly make the same kind of critique that a you know a sort of a communist that's kind of trying to use the labor party uh, <laughs> can make this critique of uh of, yeah you know it's actually good that corbin didn't win he like just undermined the hell out of the uh theresa may's project he proved the blairites wrong and um and now he's in a good place to be in opposition and so uh labor has a good oppositional place and that's a good place for you know if you're if you're going for the labor party marxist tendency which you know i think if you're open enough that doesn't it's not really entryism i know that sounds like bullshit but i think it's true like this is a good place to be in oppositionally La labor doesn't have to take responsibility for the government <laughs> and as yeah. long as that's true like that's that's a good place to be in and uh, a more traditional Marxist strategy as laid out in revolutionary strategy definitely seems more appropriate in the short to medium term for uh, the United Kingdom, in my opinion, than the United States for certain. Yeah. What I was going to say is, I'm oh, sorry, Patrick. It's fine. 
yeah, also a lot of working class people came out to vote for Corbyn, which is interesting, I guess, even though that even though there isn't a lot of working class labor members at this point in time. Yeah. Oh well, yeah, I mean it shows it's it's the reason the being I guess critically supportive of Corbyn is not because we agree with his politics so much as it just is generally moving the working class to the left or the general, you know, political discourse, you know, what they call the Overton window, you know, it is, you know, moving to the left relatively. It's also moving to the right, but it also shows that it's not only moving to the right, but there's also, you know, a growing kind of a, you know, there's a growing class consciousness because Corbyn is way more class conscious, way more anti-imperialist, way more working class oriented than Bernie Sanders. And yeah, must be so. As far as social democrats go, Corbyn looks pretty damn good, you know. And so it's kind of hard to dismiss that people like him are gaining popularity over these, you know, over the old guard of you know, labor liberals. Like it does yeah, show it that is. there is a desire for an alternative. Yeah, old guard. It wasn't even the old guard. This is new labor. This is like them getting over the the, you know third way kind of Blairite phase of the Labour Party. I mean, this oh, is, this is, really what I, this is a definitive like break. At this point because they're trying to protect their positions against, you know, Corbyn. Yeah, he basically sure. got in there before them and then just kind of like hunkered down and just wrote it out basically <laughs> until uh, their stuff failed and then stepped forward essentially. Um, yeah. yeah, so in, in any ways, he's even, he, he's even kind of a throwback really in, in a lot of ways. Right, right. That's crucial. Even though, honestly, like in terms of, you know, in terms of person, Corbyn is probably the most radical labor prime minister, you know, or prime minister, excuse me, head of labor party um, to stand. Like labor was never the Marxist party. Like Corbyn is some kind of extremely soft, like Lasallian, you know, socialist. Like this is, it's, Maybe maybe I'm just hallucinating because of how what a desert we're in, but it does seem like Corbyn, even compared to you know traditional labor heads, is is you know significantly to the left. Yeah, I mean one thing though that I'm not hearing a lot of people talking about is uh, Syriza. You know, I mean like that was like the last big instance of like you know uh, anti-austerity leftist politics. You know seizing power basically and if there's you know this huge celebratory aspect on the left then they kind of copped out and then everyone basically just kind of forgot about them and so i would like to see more people talking about the dynamic of you know you can't have you really can't have anti-austerity in one country uh, you can't you know you can't you there has to be you know broader international coalition co uh, co coordination of the working class if you're actually going to accomplish anything um so i mean obviously there's you know there's obviously a lot to be optimistic about here because you know even in the wake of like terrorist attacks he basically came out and said well you know we shouldn't fund terrorism or we shouldn't uh, go off on these sort of imperialist adventures in other people's countries and shit uh, and that actually worked so you know there that's huge um and that's something definitely to to be optimistic about um but there's also there's a there's a lot of there's a lot a long way to go it's <laughs> before we're actually anywhere otherwise because i feel like we're still in this cycle where 
everyone on the left wants to see every defeat as a secret success, but really every success is like a secret defeat. <laughs> well, but on the other hand, like I don't want to, there's a lot of, you know, the more ultra left types are completely dismissing this as just like, Oh, it doesn't mean anything. It's just another type of cap. It's just, you know, a different person managing capitalism. That's all it means. When, as you know, as you said, people voted for an anti-imperialist candidate in droves. So, I mean, saves means nothing. I don't think you have to concede the critique of social democracy to not at least be un- to at least understand how this plays a role in class composition. If that makes sense. Yeah, and if I don't know, labor is interesting. Labor is not the Democratic Party. Labor is showing a kind of dynamic of why it might have been important to have even a, quote, bourgeois workers party, quote, over a liberal coalition like the Democrats and how even even the most bankrupt social democratic party that was reformist and anti-communist from the beginning is still better than the Democratic Party. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's not a high, it's not a high benchmark, but yeah. no, no, it's not a high benchmark. But I think <laughs> the fact of the matter is, labor looking at uh, institutions and and what kind of institutions uh, are more amenable to. Well, the Labor Party is basically a dues-based, membership-based party that gets its income, you know, for, for campaign financing mostly from unions. So it does still have um, a sort of working class base. So I think, you know, the arguments for um, working in the Democrats don't really count for working in the Labor Party. I mean, the arguments against working in Democrats, if you, I don't think you can mechanically apply them to working in the Labor Party. There's certainly some overlap, but that's exactly what I'm trying to get at, um, is that aspect, that difference. Um, Fact is, someone as soft as Bernie Sanders couldn't get, um, you know, the Democratic nomination, whereas someone more left-wing than Corbyn was able to, you know, win the Labor Party. So I think that does say something. Yeah, someone as left-wing as Corbyn could could nail the Labor Party. Uh, yeah, I mean, let's, I mean, let's I think mean, about that. Like, that's like, are the Labor Party Marxists, you know, totally crazy? I mean, they must be feeling hell of indicated right now. Um, given a longer kind of point of view than most electoral politics admits, we might be more skeptical. We might really wonder what even, you know, in the next election, how things will go. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it really comes down to how, how militant is the working class in England willing to get? You know, are they going to actually vote for a transition to like a how can you can you prepare the working class there to vote for a transition or to work towards a transition to a higher and better form of society or are you going to basically promise them that they're going to make the current system work better for everyone like that's really the key fault line i mean the spirit of 45 was the promise of british socialism it's hard to imagine that that's really what's going to be this it, it would without dismissing, you know, what it would mean for Corbyn to be prime minister at all, it it would almost be like a, like a LARP of the spirit of 45. Like, 
you know, there isn't the social basis for building socialism from the Labour Party right now, even if, you know, this is a hopeful development. I mean, at best, you might, I mean, because I think what CBGB's line is that they want to turn into like a united front of, a uh, united front of the left of the working class. I, I, forget what, I forget what it was exactly, but I mean, it certainly could provide them with spaces and a platform to expound their views to a wider audience than they might get, you know, sort of operating within their own, you know, sect spheres and so on, so. Do yeah, they exactly? It's I think the Labour Party Marxists have actually there are their actual writings on the Labour Party are pretty damn critical of the Labour Party, but because they're working within that organization, people might actually hear those criticisms and take them seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as as far as that's concerned, that would certainly apply. I don't know, in the, but the problem is in the abstract, that would apply to the Democrats. People would take our criticisms of the Democrats more seriously if we were fucking working in the Democrats. I mean, that's, that's, that by itself isn't a reason to work for the Democrats. Well, the political structures are a bit different, and that's something you can't discount either. Um, totally. You know what I'm trying to say. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 I, th I think it comes down to specifics because, I mean, the political structure, I mean, because the Democratic Party almost isn't really a party. It's it's a fundraising machine. And so there's really not a lot you can do acting within a fundraising machine unless you're raising funds. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, even if, if we wanted to do something like that, it, 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 there's just, there are, really aren't any avenues for it. Recent, some, maybe like a, to get a sense of where things are at right now, I would, we can turn to uh, Grenfell Tower or London's Burning Tower of Poor People. So, I don't know if you saw images, I'm sure everyone saw images of that giant block on fire. Um, it did give me a chance to learn that uh, Jehu on Twitter is a 9-11 truther, apparently. Um, because he basically said, hmm, interesting that, uh, interesting that... Uh, Wait, you mean Jehu, the uh, Jehu, yeah. crank, Jehu. who is all about automation? Yeah, because I saw a tweet like when that was happening where he was like, interesting, interesting that uh, Tower 7 stood for only three hours and that the, you know, the apartment block is still standing or whatever. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm not anyway, surprised about that. But. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised in the sense of I thought he was a certain kind of crank and, you know, like a, a more erudite, a, a even if he's rough around the edges and dropping the end bomb here and there. Like, uh, you know, I, I just didn't get the sense that he was a real, like, proletarian, like, you know, meth and battery acid kind of crank. You know what I mean? Like, 9-11 <laughs> truth really drives that home. Yeah, Jehu, well, there's other um, ultra-left 9-11 truthers, but Jehu also has other just crank ideas. Like, the idea that the U.S. state is fascist right now, like, is a currently a fascist state. And part of his argument is that we don't use the gold standard for currency. <laughs> no. He argues that all like Keynesians, all like all like uh, Keynesian sort of economy-based states are just fascist automatically. It's kind it's of weird. That's like a weird state. ANCAP type line. That if there's any state intervention at all, it's it's basically fascism because yeah. all taxation is theft. Well, yeah, I, well, huh? Uh, maybe that's why he apparently Jehu, one of Jehu's fans on Facebook, was telling me that he used to refer to the dictatorship of the proletariat as fascism, and maybe that's what he meant by that. <laughs> Anyway, so there's a you saw the fire. Apparently, like 
they spent like ten million dollars to like fix up the lobby and put put a bunch of panels outside on it to make it look nicer for like the rich people who had to look at it down the street. But they never actually installed like adequate fire safety systems or whatever. Um, as of this recording, uh, I guess there were seventy people who remain unaccounted for and thirty are confirmed dead. Uh, there have been like a series of protests. Uh, there's like videos of like Theresa May and like the royal family and even the mayor getting heckled. I think I think the uh, the mayor of London who didn't actually endorse Corbyn like had a bottle thrown at him. Yeah, it's it's people are pissed. And one thing that Corbyn did that actually kind of made me respect him more was suggested that the houses that like rich people live in that don't that or that they don't live in that they own should just be requisitioned and people from the apartment complex should be put in them. Uh, yeah. Just the fact he used the word requisition because that's what, you know, the Bolsheviks did to the, you know, petty bourgeois, you know, peasants or whatever. They requisitioned their excess grain. So, I don't know. It's just, it's just kind of, it's kind of Bolshevik sounding, which makes me um, happy. Yeah, I mean, this is just another thing, too, that's, like, symptomatic of, you know, the real estate market run amok, essentially. Where it's, like, they spend all the, like, literally, like, the 10 million was spent to fix the outside of it but like inside of it they don't even have like proper like fire safety <laughs> systems i mean you know it, it this it really is an outcome of like what happens when um you know the real estate market is completely subsumed to private profit and public expenditures are completely minimized um which you know i think that goes a long way towards explaining gentrification and you know the increasing like increasing shittiness and cost of like living conditions and all that shit. Um, yeah. It's right to be horrified by this and it's right to be heartened by the way that Corbin, you know, rhetorically handled this, but one has to suspend judgment and it remains to be seen how Corbin will follow through on this when, and I think it is a, when he gets a shot at the reins of power, if he's going to follow through on a housing policy, they actually will consider something like, um, you know, requisition of, of unused houses in places where there's, you know, housing crises or something like that. Honestly, just the fact that he said it makes me happy. Even it's not probably not even. Happen. Let's just face it. But this, the right wing is going nuts. They're like, oh my god, he's that's, not, that's against private property. That's stealing. <laughs> he's like, violating the nap. I'm so angry about this. Like it's so hilarious to see the right wing's reactions. I mean, I appreciate yeah. that, but what what about, you know, working class people that hear that feel heartened five years, they vote in Jezza, and he doesn't consider anything remotely like that. And, you know, kind of sets in that this dude used a, a tragedy to make a talking point that he wasn't going to follow through on. I mean, that's the long term kind, kind of depressive, well, th- you know, th- thinking you know, that thinking we need to do, I guess. Well, um, yeah, I mean, well, the thing is, I mean, the real question is, you know, can he? I mean, the, the problem isn't so much that whether he does or doesn't want to. It's can he? Uh, because will you know, he try? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I think I think he would certainly try. But I think once once you start looking at the numbers and understand that, you know, you still have to you you have to like be there has to be some level of economic growth in order to fund your, your tax base, and you know, there's only a limit to which progressive taxation can be used to increase the tax base if you're dealing with capital flight and you know decrease profits so within capitalism there are limits to the extent to which you know even if you went through with requisitions you could actually um 
you know, raise the living standards of people, you know, within the working, even within the working class. Um, and you know, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of the truth that the neoliberals have in terms of their political program is that we exist within capitalism and then, you know, you basically need to find ways to increase profits and to do that, that's probably going to mean, you know, cutting social services and finding ways to get more money, uh, into investment and hence the politics of the last 40 years. So it's, you know, it's, there's such deep, that, that's the trap is that there's such deeper underlying uh, forces at work here that I don't know if even people who are on, you know, the Bernie Krat left or the labor left in England are really prepared to reckon with it in a, in a fundamental way. Um, but anyway, uh, none of us are, I mean, Mike McNair just needs to be like, you know, uh, being, he just needs to be Jeremy's uh, strategy assistant and he'll explain to him why <laughs> he just needs to stay as an opposition party and build up support. He, 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 <laughs> he, needs to, he needs to be his Steve Bannon. Yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. But really, like if Mike McNair became Jez's Steve Bannon, you know, McNair's strategy is that you need to get rid of the nationalist and reformist right. How much of the party is the nationalist and reformist right? Like you can't cohabitate with them. Otherwise, your party ends up being itself a bourgeois coalition. And you need to fight for a Marxist platform, a contemporary Erfurt program, but perhaps one that Marx or that Engels would have had less of an issue with. Like, you know, where McNair is intellectually consistent, he has incredibly stringent um, conditions for success that if he was the Steve Bannon, how would he execute this program? That's what makes the Labor Party Marxist. It's only, it's only if you take McNair seriously that the Labor Party Marxist thing seems a bit odd. If, if you have lower expectations than McNair has, Labor Party Marxist seems all right. You know, it's a reformist effort, but it, it's, it seems to make sense. But when you're looking at what McNair is saying as the goals, it's a real long shot. We have to acknowledge that. Not that, you know, you shouldn't do it. Just, right? Yeah, the, the betting markets are not in favor of uh, global communism. Uh, that's not where the money is. But you know what? The money was also against Corbyn, too. So, you know, who the fuck knows? Yeah, I, I, I like to think I'm right about this shit, but, you know, maybe that's just my ego. I don't know. Well, communism may win, ultimately. I'm just saying, you know, we have, you know, be sober about the prospects. Indeed. Uh, let's talk about the uh, the Bernie bro assassin. Uh, on Wednesday, a man named James Hodgkinson or Hodgkinson opened fire at a baseball field, injuring a congressional staffer, a lobbyist, and Louisiana Republican Representative Steve Scalise. Uh, not much is really known about the shooter. Uh, apparently, he volunteered for Bernie Sanders. Um, used to talk about you know. He was concerned about wealth inequality. Uh, apparently, some ev recent uh, prior to the shooting, he liked to uh, drink Budweiser and watch golf at a local barbecue place. And another one of his pastimes was uh, hanging out on a bench in front of a Walgreens, uh, where he would smoke and read. So I don't know if that gives you a little portrait into uh, what his life was like. Uh, but yeah, so anyway, he went and shot some Republican senator, or sorry, representative, and. Yeah, you know, this might be the first time something like that's happened where Alex Jones hasn't declared it a false flag. 
Um, and it, apparently it also inspired Ted Nugent to moderate some of his rhetoric. Um, I don't know. Did no anyone way. have any thoughts on this? Or Yeah. Really? This is what got Ted to stop it? You know, I, I thought um, the exchange around Rand Paul's comments were the most interesting because when people really do take the anti-government rhetoric seriously, inevitably it goes, well, not like that. You know, like even, um, right. even uh, you know, one of the fucking few times that, that there's a stopped clock and conservatives are right is that, you know, these liberals are calling the Republicans Nazis and fascists. And then somebody shoots a fascist and says, where's my Medal of Honor? You know? Well, yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, I, I don't know. Hodgkinson did nothing wrong is my, uh, <laughs> is my take on this. I mean, come on. I'm not going to fucking cry for, um. This Republican asshole. And I'm also just uh, equating it with like Islamic terror, like some people have been on the left, is ridiculous. It's not Islamist terror targeting random civilians for, you know, being apostates. It's, it, it was a target on someone whose policies probably have, you know, definitely have gotten people killed. So it's really hard for me to join in with the bourgeois media chorus of, you know, well, this guy is so bad. We need more gun control, blah, blah, blah. You know, this is why, you know, all this terrorism, left-wing terrorism is bad too. I mean, and yeah, it's a stupid strategy. It doesn't work, but at the Let's same time- Let's talk about the strategy though. That's that's the thing we need to make because it's not about the moral condemnation. That's not the point. And yeah, we, should... is we shouldn't join in in the moral condemnation because- No, we should not join in on the moral condemnation, but that doesn't mean we go whole hog and, and make a strategic confirmation that yes, go, go the Dorner route, the Dorner method, you know, like start spraying some cops and good things will happen. Because I don't know, there's a very confrontational strand of uh, liberalism or radicalism broadly defined that's kind of been out there. That's like, all right, we need to have, you know, we need to heighten the contradictions. We need to get weapons involved. We need to defend ourselves by any means necessary. Um, when, you know, a lot of that might be inviting a fight that we, we, we can't really win. Well, well I mean, this guy, this guy does not sound like a typical leftist in a lot of ways. Like that's true. He sounds like my dad, to be honest. And what's kind of funny about it is like whenever I talk to my dad about, you know, kind of the way that, I guess what you know, a lot of people describe as corruption works within capitalism. Like his first response is like, somebody just needs to go out and like shoot these people. Like somebody just needs to get, somebody just needs to take a gun and go shoot all those lobbyists, <laughs> shoot all the senators. Like I'm, I'm not even kidding. Like no, no, I, I mean, it makes sense in a way. I mean, I, I think this is this is like a very um, old middle aged white guy response to political radicalization. You know what I mean? Like. I, I mean, and just uh, reading about his life a little bit, what they describe it, like he, like he literally hangs out at a bench in front of Walgreens. Like it's like the saddest thing I've ever heard. Like this is like an extremely alienated existence yeah. um, that fuels this kind of shit. I think uh, that often doesn't really get talked about. Yeah, um, yeah. People people turn to extremism. Uh, and you know, usually because uh, you know they live in a deeply like alienated society, and they don't really have any outlets for you know their frustrations or desires. You know, um, yeah. so anyway, I don't know that that's actually what stuck out to me more than anything else. It just kind of reminds me of like talking to like older white guys about like the first thing they say is like, yeah, somebody just needs to go shoot these people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've talked to friends about politics, and the first thing they say is, I just want to hang them all, just like kill every politician, and then kill yeah. their children as well. Like, yeah. you know, that's it's it's like kind of the basic. Uh, 
you know, they just want revanchism on these assholes who are fucking everyone over. And when you have no mass party or like real labor movement or political movement of any kind that's structured and institutionalized that you can participate in, you know, you feel like, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to go kill some Republican senator. My, why not? What's nothing what's else going to do anything? Everything what? else failed. Wasn't there a lot of like revanchist like assassinations like in Russia prior to the revolution and stuff yeah, like that? That was basically the strategy of the anti-Tsar movement was middle class intellectuals would go commit terrorist acts and try to get the peasants to join them, you know. Like Bakunin influence and the idea was like, you know, you'll take out some uh special certain landlords and the peasants will be inspired to uprise and bring back the uh peasant commune. Very Maoistia. Yeah. yeah, it's it's uh, the strategy of the Narodniks, the populace, who are disappointed with their attempts to go to the people and do uh, consciousness raising and decided, you know what, let's just circumvent consciousness raising. I'm sure if I just took out the czar, everyone would be psyched. Let me try that. Um, which actually has its own expression in American history when a someone who was quoted as saying, uh, I am a real Karl Marxist. Uh, someone who went to the Soviet Union, was disappointed and moved back, ended up shooting President Kennedy. Um, I mean, if you believe the lies, yeah. I mean, if you right, believe right. the official if story. You believe, if you believe that bedtime lies. story. <laughs> yeah, if, if you're woke to the Oliver Stone bong load truth, then, um, you know, disregard did, did Did anyone see uh, Putin when he was talking to Megyn Kelly actually float out the idea that Kennedy was killed by like intelligence services in the U.S. Anyone catch that? <laughs> no, I'm not even kidding. I need to still watch those. Uh, yeah, I, I, mean, I, I watched like the truncated version of it. It was amazing. Like he was like he was like trolling on like a high level. It was a it was amazing. <laughs> I'm also looking honestly like people, everyone's shitting on her right now for some reason, but like she's got that Alex Jones interview coming out too. Like yeah, it's supposed to come out like on excited. Sunday. Yeah, and yeah, I guess I, I saw like the preview for it, and at one point, like the it the preview ends with Alex Jones like asking her like why the mainstream media isn't talking about human animal hybrids that they've been developing for thirty years. It's oh gonna be great. God. Yes, this it's is gonna be great. You know what? This is the kind of open conversation that we need to have. Uh, it's weird that Alex Jones doesn't think Sandy Hook happened and is pretty fucked up, but it. I thought it was interesting how that was the angle that they were trying to like shame Megyn Kelly for bringing Alex Jones into the light because honestly, stuff like Alex Jones does need to be exposed. It's like, you know, it's like legalizing marijuana. Like you can't pretend it's going to bring the revolution or that there's something so, um, you know, unsubsumable about it when it's in the mainstream, when it is being subsumed, when it's openly discussed and talked about and, you know, the lizards don't shed their skin and fall apart. Like it's important to bring these things out into the light. Well, anyone, anyone who's gonna see it, like people who don't use YouTube, it's like old people. Like they're the only people who don't know like who Alex Jones is at this point. Like I'm sure everyone's probably seen like something from this dude, even if it's just like that oh, crazy yeah. guy that there's like a super deluxe cut of or whatever. At this point, Alex Jones is a major media person, and it's really because of Trump. If you think about it, if it wasn't for Trump, Alex Jones would be a nobody. Well, not a nobody, but he would still have this kind of you know, wacko niche crowd, you know. Yeah, he's, I, he's I've known about him since I was like 14. That's because yeah. you, know, you hear about the Illuminati, so you will go up on Google and, you know, 
tried well, to yeah, he was, a, he was attached to the anti-globalization movement and the anti-war movement to an extent. Yeah, uh, he was, but now, he's, now he's attached to basically the Trump, you know, broad coalition or the united front of the right, basically. Yeah, which is funny because you know the anti-war movement almost was like this weird united front between the right and the left. You had like paleocons and libertarians on the right, and then mm-hmm. you know tankies and just you know left liberals on the left being the dominant tendencies. So it was like almost this weird, um, not necessarily, maybe not necessarily red brown, but just a kind of left right alliance against the war, which was speaking of speaking of Trump, uh, I think we got a couple points to hit on him and then we'll close this out. Uh, so just, uh, just today, uh, he unveiled in Miami, his grand Cuba policy, which is basically means, uh, no, no private flights to Cuba anymore. Um, There'll be no no businesses can work with military or intelligence services over there, which will restrict some of the economic interaction and extent. But actually, like a lot of stuff from the Obama stuff will stay the same. He just gets to kind of bring back like the hardline rhetoric where it's like, ah, oh, shame on you, Cuba, for being Cuba, you know. Um, so I wanna... that that fucks up my plan to go to Cuba. Yeah, I want yeah. to go to Cuba. I knew Trump was going to fuck up Cuba somehow. He's either going to turn it into a big Trump Tower or he's <laughs> that we can't visit. Like Either way, he fucked it up, so fuck Trump. <sighs> fuck. Yeah, I think we missed our window on that one. Yeah. See, another reason we should have voted for Hillary Clinton. You know, Now we can't go to Cuba. We could have gotten the UFO files. We could have gotten to go to Cuba. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, the Democrats. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, if they pit, the thing is though, if she ran on that, if she ran on cheap flights to Cuba <laughs> and released UFO files, I think she, you know people would have been excited to vote for her, but they didn't, which we didn't. And that's on her. Yeah. Um, and then one thing I don't think we, I think we had a news roundup um, after this happened. We never talked about it. Was Trump pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement? Um, which, you know, was greeted with a lot of, uh, you know, doom rejoinders on the left and, ah, we're fucked now and this and that. Um, And let's see. Yeah, so anyway. um, But the thing about that is, though, I mean, it just kind of shows, like, any reform to climate change would have to be so extensive that there was, like, no going back on it in order for it to, like, stick in capitalist society. Yeah, I didn't even think the Paris Agreement was really that binding. Like, it no, wasn't it wasn't a strong agreement at all. And I think that was how like Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump was trying to sell it to Daddy Warbucks. Should we? Yeah, should we? Uh, should we wrap this up or? Yeah, let's wrap it up. Uh, should we just leave? Maybe just leave it off there. I don't really have anything else to talk about. Really, I mean, I guess we had like the list of the anti-Roma stuff, but I don't really know that much about it. I don't know if I really have anything to say. I don't really even know what's going on in Greece, to be honest. No, uh, I don't know what's going on. Um, mean and mean and ungenerous. I mean, I don't even have that much to say about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's fucked up. Um, I wish there. Were, I wish there was like more follow-up writings on how the like terrain has shifted in Greece politically. I mean, I guess Syriza is basically locked in there because they're in there for that parliamentary cycle. And I think the the anarchists are continue trying to you know organize counter power. I don't know what the fascists are up to. Uh, I'm sure, just, just just winning. <laughs> winning. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. That that was that was such an interesting situation, but yeah, Syriza just completely you know again they that's like the 
case lesson like in the recent years of like writing up your mouth writing a check your ass can't cash yeah i mean god what a series of self-inflicted wounds Sariza, um, good old Sorizo. You know, the thing is, is that the people that are talking about it are the ultra left, are the communizers. They're talking about Sariza. They got Sariza on the brain. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and you know what? Like, if like maybe they're wrong in some of the finer details, but in the broadest strokes, the ultra lefts are right about these electoral efforts. Yeah. Like one has, has to retain the radical critique of reformism. Like, yeah. I mean, the like it's interesting. It's it's kind of like the failure of social democracy. Like OG, like original social democracy was that they didn't, they didn't pull the trigger when things got hot, you right. know. And so in that sense, they were basically kind of like the. It seems like the Bolshevik Party did a much better job of keeping up with the workers because when the workers started to basically pull away from the political representatives um, that they that existed in Russia at the time, and it mm. seems like the like the German Social Democrats weren't as good at that. And that left them open to, you know, essentially like the National Socialist, you know, hucksters being able to make a pitch to the workers and Hitler could pitch himself as the German Lenin, essentially, uh, for people who weren't particularly for informed about those things. Um, and that would end. And so, like, yeah, like in, you know, 1917, you know, to 1920, whatever, like the German Social Democratic Party is definitely a counter-revolutionary force almost in a way. But prior to that, like building up class power to get to the point where you're in like a high revolutionary situation, it's a little bit different. Even if their politics are the same in both cases, hmm. you know, it's like those. It's almost like those optical illusions where, like, you know, you have like a a gray bar, or and it, like it's the same gray bar, but you put it against like different colored backgrounds, and the bar looks different in different places, but it's the <laughs> same bar, you know. That's it for this week. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can email us at swapsidechats at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can like us on Facebook and or give us a good review on iTunes. So until next week, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.